0: This time the children can be dismissed for children's church. And if you have a Bible, if you wouldn't mind, you could turn to Numbers chapter 26. If you don't have one, you could. Uh, there's one; it should be one in front of you. Uh, we're not going to read one main passage. Usually, we read uh, one main passage and kind of talk about that. But uh, this is going to be the last uh, message in the book of Numbers, and so we're going to kind of cover a lot of ground, uh, basically some content from Numbers 26 to 36. Um, but I think there's a lot in there that we can learn from, a lot that um, God would have to say to us today. Um, So as we go through, we're not going to read again a passage at the beginning, but we'll read some passages as we go through. Um, I think that we can survive with faith, but we can't thrive if we don't have hope. We can survive with faith, but we can't thrive if we don't have hope. Well, you Think about faith and hope. What's the difference between faith and hope? Uh, sometimes when we talk about faith and hope, the meanings can kind of overlap. But I think that hope has, usually has more to do with the emotions and the affections than faith. Faith is believing that you can get to the destination. Hope is taking joy in that destination. So, for example, if I were to tell you that I had buried a pot of gold at the end of Bryant Street, and all you have to do is go to the end of Bryant Street and dig up that gold. If I told you that, faith would get you walking there. Hope would put a smile on your face. Faith causes us to believe. Hope causes us to take joy in that destination. I really love the way that Merriam-Webster defines hope. They define it as to cherish, to cherish a desire with anticipation. It's not just I believe that it's true, but I want it to be true, and I'm looking forward to it being true. Jerome Groupman, professor at Harvard Medical School, has diagnosed uh, numerous patients with serious uh, diseases, and he discovered that all of them were looking for a sense of genuine hope. He says that hope was as important to them as anything he might prescribe as, as a physician. He wrote a book called The Anatomy of Hope. Groupman was asked for his definition of hope, and he replied, he said, basically, I think hope is the ability to see a path to the future. You're facing a dire circumstances, and you need to know everything that's blocking or threatening you. And then you see a path, or a potential path, to get where you want to be. Once you see that, there's a tremendous emotional uplift that occurs. He goes on and says, I think hope has been, is, and always will be at the heart of medicine and healing. We could not live without hope. He suggested even with all the medical technology available to us now, he says we still come back to this profound human need to believe that there is a possibility to reach a future that's better than the one that's in the present. So again, today we're concluding the book of Numbers. And as we've been tracking through the book of Numbers, now we're at a point where uh, the old sinful generation of Israelites has died off and now there's this new generation, the children of promise, and they're kind of on the banks of the promised land. There's still uh, enemy forces in the promised land, but they're ready to enter the promised land. And so when we get to chapters 26 to 36, there's these glimmers of hope that they're about to receive the promise, the the things that had been promised to Abraham for years and years and years. And I think about their kind of situation where they're children of promise, kind of ready to enter into the promised land. And I think their situation is not all that different from our situation as believers. For those of us who are believers in Jesus, we are children of promise. There's a promised land, heaven, that's promised for us, but we're not there yet. So just like these Israelites are on the banks of the promised land, we're on the banks of entering into eternity with God. In heaven for those of us who are believers, and just like these uh, Israelites had enemies that were uh, that were in their face that they were staring at before they entered into the promised land, we as believers have enemies that come against us before we get to enter into the promised land. And so I think as we look at their situation, it's very similar in terms of salvation history to our situation. And I think that these closing chapters can teach us a lot about hope what it looks like to live in expectation of what God is going to do. And I think there are specifically five things that we can learn from this passage as well as some other passages of Scripture related to hope. The first thing I think that this passage, these passages teach us is that hope is never completely fulfilled in this life. Hope is never completely fulfilled in this life. So back in May... Uh, me and my family went on a vacation. We went down to Virginia Beach. And I, and leading up to that, I had a lot of hope, a lot of anticipation. I was just looking forward. You know, obviously, last year, most people didn't travel a whole lot. So it was the first time kind of getting away. First time traveling with our, with our son, uh, Paul, who was, you know, just under two years old. So there's a lot of hope, a lot of anticipation. I was thinking about, you know, the the beach, and where we're going to stay, and the things that we're going to do. And the day came, we left, went on the trip, came back, and everything went pretty well. You know, the place we stayed was nice, it was beautiful weather, everything was great, but yet when I was returning, I felt a little bit sad, a little bit unfulfilled, like that hope was not fully realized. Most of it was probably because of the length of the trip, it seemed, you know, a vacation, you have all these things you plan on doing on vacation, you know, and then you get there and you don't do any of them because it just, you know, time just kind of passes you by. You know, but I think about the hopes that we have in life, and I feel like the things that we hope for, whether it's a job or relationship, a vacation, financial security, you know, these things that we hope for, even if we receive these blessings from God, they're not ultimately fulfilling. There's still a little bit of discontent even if God chooses to give these things to us. In Numbers 34, uh, God spoke to Moses and told him what the boundary of the promised land would be. And the boundary of the promised land was kind of in accordance with the boundary of the promised land that the Egyptians saw. And so this was kind of the standard land of Canaan as it was seen in the ancient world. But what's interesting about the promised land and how God gives that to Israel is that there are certain portions of the land of the promise that were never actually occupied by Israel specifically some of the northern portions of the promised land, Israel never actually got there. Now, most of it they, they received. Most of that promised land they received, but not all of that. So why didn't God allow them to occupy all of that? Now, we can't know for sure, and, but I think if we look at this story and look at the rest of Scripture, it's certainly not out of the ordinary that God often gives partial fulfillments to his promises. So when we look at the story of Abraham, Abraham was the one who was originally given this promise, this promise that uh, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to uh, make you into a great nation. I'm going to use you to be a blessing. So that was, he was the one who was originally promised the promised land. But it says in the book of Hebrews that he was not just looking to the land of Canaan as the promised land. He was not just looking to a physical land. He was looking to something deeper. That the land of Canaan was only a partial fulfillment of the promise of God. Hebrews 1113 to 16 says this. Speaking of Abraham and other patriarchs, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So Abraham, he's not just looking to a physical land. He's going to die before that promise is even realized. And so he's not looking just to a physical land. He's looking to, for a heavenly reward, a heavenly promise. So again, my son Paul is about two years old, just under two years old. And occasionally we'll be going uh, to our parents' house or going somewhere for dinner, and, you know, it'll be like a half hour or an hour before dinner, and he'll start saying, eat, 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 meaning he's hungry. And when that happens, we don't stop at McDonald's and buy him a hamburger and French fries. What do we do? We, you know, Stephanie usually has a, a bag of snacks packed, and so she, you know, maybe we'll give him a cheese stick to hold him over to dinner time so it doesn't spoil his dinner. And I think as we're walking forward in faith, uh, walking forward in in the obedience to God, sometimes I think God gives us little promises, little blessings to keep us going. Sometimes when he's not quite ready to give us the full promise, he'll give us something small to keep us going. And we won't receive the full promise until we get to heaven. I think sometimes as Christians we can get discouraged because, you know, we'll be doing all the right things. We're believing in God, we're obeying God, walking with God, and yet it feels like things aren't going as we'd hoped they would. We feel like there's still this kind of dissatisfaction. And I think sometimes, you know, of course we could be doing something wrong, but sometimes we're not doing anything wrong. It's like God's just given us a little snack, just a little taste of what's to come. And it's not fully satisfying like a meal would be, but it's something to keep us going. And we need to walk in perseverance and hope that something better is on the horizon. So that's the first thing this passage teaches. Hope is never completely fulfilled in this life. They never completely enter that promised land. A second thing I think we learned is living in hope also means living in holiness. One of the concerns in these chapters is ridding the promised land of evil and evildoers. Uh, Numbers 33, 51-53 says this, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given the land to you to possess. The land of hope is the land of holiness. The land of hope is a land where God's peace and God's justice reign. So what kind of land is it that we hope for? What is the promised land, heaven, going to be like? What should we want it to be like? Well, the other day I was driving down uh, Erie Avenue and uh, we were going to Stephanie's parents' house and I see something behind me that you never want to see. I see lights. Uh, I'm getting pulled over. So I get pulled over, and I'm very confused because I'm, you know, looking at my speedometer. I wasn't really going very fast, so I'm confused why I'm getting pulled over. And so, you know, the police officer comes up and says, hey, license registration. Still have no idea what he's, you know, why he pulled me over. He's like, you went through a red light. I was like, what? And and I had no idea what he was talking about. You know, first of all, I didn't even know which intersection he was talking about because there's like three or four intersections right in a row there. He's like, yeah, you went through a red light. I was like, I'm sorry, I I didn't know I went through a red light. So I'm thinking I'm losing my mind or something, you know, and then he leaves and Stephanie says, I remember that intersection he was talking about, it wasn't actually red. You know, it was yellow, and you didn't even have to, you didn't even speed up. It was like if you would have stopped, it would have, you know, caused a dangerous situation. It wasn't red. You know, I think what's interesting is that I've gotten three tickets in my life. And I'll admit, you know, I, there were times in my life where I deserved to get a ticket, where I was driving too fast. But I didn't get a ticket for any of those times. Any times where I was knowingly driving too fast, I didn't get any tickets. The only times I ever got tickets were things that were silly, like when I was driving through a school zone that had just been put up. I had been d- driven down that road for years and years and years and all of a sudden a school zone just kind of popped up there. It wasn't really near a school. So kind of silly things like that, but you think about that and it's like that's kind of how justice is like in our world sometimes. It's like sometimes we do the right thing and we get punished. We do the wrong thing and we don't get punished. I mean, that's just the nature of kind of finite human justice in our world. But that's not the justice that God has. God sees everything. God sees even the things that are done in secret. And the world that we long for as believers is a world of perfect justice where God is going to come back. He's going to right all wrongs. He's going to live uh, and rule in perfect justice. And if that's our hope, if that's our reality, if it's the hope that Christ is going to come back and he's going to reign in justice, then we should accord our lives and live in accordance with that justice. If Christ is going to reign in justice and mercy, then we should live in justice and mercy. 1 John 3, 2-3 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we, will, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So John talks about this hope that purifies. He's talking about believers becoming like Christ. That's our hope. Hope that we become like Christ, that Christ would come back and reign in justice. And so if we're going to live in accordance with that hope, we should live lives of holiness and live lives of justice now. And in so doing, we get ready for the uh, world to come. So hope leads to holiness. The third thing this passage teaches us is that hope is to be cherished. So the final book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 36, we see a very interesting set of circumstances. And it kind of seems out of place what uh, the author of Numbers, Moses, was talking about here. Uh, But there's this story about the daughters of Zelopheb. Uh, and back in chapters 26 to uh, 25 to 26, uh, God is kind of distributing the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, to the different families. And uh, while he's doing that, well, through Moses, uh, the daughters of Zelophead come up to Moses and say, hey, we haven't received any inheritance. Our father Zelophead died in the wilderness. He didn't have any sons, and usually uh, the sons would be the ones who would inherited the land. We didn't receive any inheritance. And then they said, basically, is it right that we shouldn't have any inheritance, that our father's name should die out? And so Moses consults God, and God basically says, they're right. They're right. They should have an inheritance. And so God arranges for these daughters of Zelophe to have an inheritance in the promised land. Then we get to chapter 36, and then there's another threat to the promise. These daughters of Zalephad think to themselves, okay, so we have this inheritance, but if we marry someone from another tribe, that tribe is going to kind of take our land uh, because they would kind of take they would take the family name of that other tribe and then that land would go to another tribe and eventually our father's name would be wiped out. We won't have any inheritance. Or if we don't marry then the land is just going to, uh, then it's not going to stay in the family either because we don't have any children. And so once again, they go to Moses, and then Moses speaks on behalf of God. And Moses says this in uh, chapter uh, 36, verses 5 to 10. It says, The tribe of the people of Joseph is right. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophe. Let them marry whom they think best. Only they shall marry within the clan of the tribe of their father. The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another, for every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the people of Israel shall be wife to one of the clan of the tribe of her father, so that every one of the people of Israel may possess the inheritance of his fathers. So no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another, for each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on to its own inheritance. And the daughters of the Zeliphate did as the Lord commanded Moses. So essentially, again, what God says is they're right. I don't want them to lose their inheritance. And so he says, here's how you keep the inheritance in the family. Make sure you marry someone that's within your own tribe. And this wasn't talking about uh, marrying someone in their own family or anything like that. It was a wider tribe. But he says, marry someone inside of your own tribe, and then that, your tribe will keep that land. And it says in the text that they do that. They obey what Moses says. And uh, so we think about this. What is significant about this? Uh, I think it's significant because we look at this story, and and again, in verses, Numbers chapter 25 to 26, the land is being distributed, but they're not in the land. There's enemies in the land. The enemies have overtaken the land, uh, or are occupying the land, and so they haven't received the promise yet. And yet, God is distributing the land, And even in that context, before they even get into the land, these daughters of Zaleph are crying out to Moses, we want a part of the promise. We want this promised land to be ours as well. And then before it even becomes an issue, before they're even married, before there's any kind of threat to the promise, they're saying essentially, we don't want to lose the land of promise. So they had this high value on the promise of God and they cherished it, they wanted to have a part of it, and they didn't want to lose it. There's a, a few years ago, there was a gem dealer who went to the Tucson Gem and Mineral Show, and he found this stone. It was a blue-violet uh, stone that was about the size of a potato, and it was being sold at one of the shops for $15. And so he comes up to the shop, the person who ran the shop, and he said, uh, so you, you're selling this for $15? And the guy said, Oh, you can have it for 10 if you want. I mean, it didn't look all that attractive. He just wanted to unload it. It turned out this was a very expensive gem. It was a 1905 carat natural star sapphire, 800 carats larger than any other of its type ever discovered. Uh, it was appraised at $2.28 million. And he got it for 10 bucks. And you think about that, and you think about how many people, how many hundreds or thousands of people had passed by that shop, seen that stone, and they weren't willing to pay even 10 or $15 for that stone. But this gem dealer who loved gems, who knew about gems, he would have paid $50. He would have paid $100, $500, $1,000, $10,000. It didn't matter what the cost was, he would pay for this very expensive gem. Jesus says this in Matthew 13:44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a, man, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had, bought, had and bought it. What if we valued our future like that? What if we had that kind of value to the promised land that God has for us? I think sometimes we view our future as an insurance policy rather than something that we look forward to with hope and expectation. The promise is the goodness that God has for us. It's meant to enliven us. It's meant to give us strength. It's meant to keep us going even in the most difficult times. And so this passage shows us that hope is something that we should cherish. Cherish the hope that we have of spending forever with our Savior. The fourth thing we learn about hope in this passage is hope is always increasing in God's economy. The book of Numbers ends unsettled, but it's filled with hope. They're not in the promised land yet, but the promise is coming. God's promise is going to come upon the people, and they're going to experience blessing. And then after they enter into the promised land, things go okay for a while, and then they kind of rebel and fall into sin. And then there's another hope. There's a hope that God's king would come and reign in justice. God's king comes in David. First Saul, not God's king, then David. David reigns with justice. And, but then after a while, people of Israel fall back into sin and fall back into idolatry. And then there's another hope on the horizon that the Messiah is going to come. The Messiah is going to come and save them and make all wrongs right. Then the Messiah comes, he dies on the cross, rises again, and then what does Jesus do? He gives his disciples hope. I'm coming again. I'm coming again, I'm going to take you to be with me. See, when we think about hope, worldly hope always has an expiration date. Worldly hope always runs out. I mean, you think about hope, and what are the things in life we hope for? You know, maybe when we were a kid, we hoped to get our driver's license. I remember that was my, you know, big hope. Finally, when I'm going to turn 16, I'm going to get my driver's license. And then after that, maybe it's, you know, I'm going to graduate from high school. You know, then maybe it's graduate from college. You know, maybe it's get married. Maybe it's to have kids. After that, maybe it's to get a certain job. Maybe it's to uh, have grandchildren. Maybe it's to retire. And, but if you get far enough down the road, you get to a point where there's no hope left from a worldly standpoint. I mean, you get to the near the end of your life, and it's like, what hope do you have from a worldly perspective? The things that you hoped for, you've already achieved, or they're no longer a possibility. So what is left to hope in? That's a worldly hope, a hope that runs out, but God's hope never runs out. See, hope in God's economy is always in the future. In God's economy, the best is always yet to come for his children. One of my favorite quotes is from C.S. Lewis uh, from the book, The uh, Last Battle, from the Chronicles of Narnia, where he kind of concludes the series, uh, and have it on my uh, plaque by my bed. It's one of my favorite quotes. He says this, all their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. I love that last phrase. Every chapter is better than the one before. That's how hope is in God's economy. When we get to heaven and we've been there 10,000 years, that 10,000 first year is going to be just as good, if not better, than the first one. And the reason that's the case is because as we are experiencing a relationship with God, God is so infinite, God is so powerful, that we can only uh, begin to plumb the depths of the person of Christ. Our hope is primarily in knowing Jesus more and more, and we can always go deeper in our relationship with Christ. And that's the final point, and that is that Jesus is our hope. For those of us who are believers, our hope is not primarily in a change of circumstances. We pray for circumstances to change in our life. We look forward to uh, a reality with no sickness or death. We look forward to reuniting with loved ones who have passed away. Those are all great things we hope for, but that's not our primary hope. Our primary hope is knowing God more and more. Christ is our hope. Our hope should be that we might grow deeper and deeper in our relationship with him. Listen to the hope and joy that uh, famous missionary who eventually was martyred for his faith, Jim Elliott, shared. Uh, This was taken from his diary uh, after he passed away. In this, I think he was praying uh, for some worldly blessing for children or or something like that. But listen to what he says. He says, I walked out to the hill just now. It's exalting, delicious, to stand embraced by the shadows of a friendly tree when the wind tugging at your coattail and the heavens hailing at your heart, to gaze in glory and to give oneself again to God. What more could a man ask? All the fullness, pleasure, sheer, sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. I care not if I never raise my voice for him again. If only I may love him, please him. Mayhap in mercy he shall give me a host of children that I may lead through the vast star fields to explore his delicacies whose fingers ends set them to burning. But if not, if only I may see him, smell his garments, and smile into my lover's eyes, ah, then not stars nor children shall matter, only himself. That's the kind of joy and hope that we're to have in our relationship with Christ. We're to say with the psalmist, as a deer pants for the living water, so my soul longeth after thee. Jesus is our ultimate hope. A relationship with Him is ultimately what we hope in. So in summary, five things about hope from this passage and other passages of Scripture. Hope is never completely fulfilled in this life. Living in hope also means living in holiness. Hope is to be cherished Hope is always increasing in God's economy, and finally, Jesus is our hope. Ladies and gentlemen, we live in a world that seems hopeless sometimes. Sometimes our backs are against the wall and it feels like there's nowhere to turn, that there's no way out, but because of what Christ has done for us, because of who Christ is for us, there's always hope. There's always a way out of the darkness. The Middle Ages, people in the political and economic centers of Europe used to talk about a way to get to India. And uh, the, the easiest way to get to India, or the, most, uh, the fastest way, would be to go around uh, the tip of Africa uh, to get there. But it was a very treacherous journey. And many people had tried to go around the tip of Africa, but they had failed. And it became known as the Cape of Storms. Because so many people had lost their lives and, and been shipwrecked from trying to go around Uh, the tip of Africa. Then there was this man named Vasco da Gama, and he decided he was going to try it again. And finally, he was the first one to succeed. And after that, nobody doubted whether it could be done anymore. And in fact, they changed the name from the Cape of Storms to the Cape of Good Hope. Because someone had conquered the storms. Someone had gone around this cape. I think as we face the storms of life, we can take solace in the fact that there's one who conquered the storms. There's one who died and rose again for us. There's one who's gone to the promised land, who's presently in heaven preparing a place for us. That's what it says in the book of John, that Jesus has gone to heaven. He's preparing a place for us. And we can have that hope because Jesus has gone before us. Storms don't always end in tragedy. There's always hope. Because Jesus is already in the promised land. and As believers in Christ, we have a relationship with him. And As believers in Christ, we have a future that involves knowing him him deeper and deeper. And delighting in all that he is for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for who you are to us. We thank you that no matter where we're at in our life, no matter what storm we're facing, that there's always hope in you. That in your economy, the best is always yet to come for those of us who are your children. Lord, help us to be people of hope. Lord, help us to be people of faith, people who believe what you say. But as we're walking through our lives, help us to have a smile on our face because we know what's coming. We know the great future that you have in store for us. And as we look to that future, help help it to lead us to holiness, to lead us to reach out to those around us and share your love.